there's two camps that exist today. There is the camp that is trying to beat Apple to launch to say they had something out before Apple or just mature their product so that it iterates like let's say Meta, right? They're just constantly launching headsets every year, iterating their process and making things better. And then you have other people who are waiting for Apple to launch and want to react to how Apple launches and what they launch. And they don't want to maybe necessarily invest too much until there's already a market. But I have to be honest with you, from what I can see, I think Apple's launch with this headset is going to be a slow one, much like it was with the watch. I think you're going to see low volume, high price, and it's going to be a lot of developers figuring out how to use it. And I think you're not really going to see it really take off in high volume, probably until the second or third generation, which is kind of like what happened with the watch. And I I think that they're going to do a lot of really interesting stuff, but I think a lot of it's already in market. I think they're already, they're just going to do things that are much more integrated and more buttoned up. And the experience is going to be a lot cleaner, but the applications are probably already out there. Welcome to Geared Up. I'm Andrew Edwards, typically joined by John Rettinger. But this week, John had a last minute commitment he had to do. However, as the show is typically done with me, John, and a guest, you're used to hearing a trio of voices. And this week, we will not be disappointing you because I have, in fact, I think I have what amounts to as a better version of the show, an improved version of the show, if you will, without John. Let me tell you who we've got here. We've got Anshel Sag, the principal analyst of More Insights and Strategy, and Finbar Moynihan, the GM and VP of Global Marketing at MediaTek, which is very exciting for me. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good to be here, Andrew. Nice to be with you. Absolutely. I'm glad you guys were able to make the time to talk. We're basically going to be talking about the mobile landscape, if you will. Obviously, having a global marketing head of MediaTek here, Finbar, I want you actually for both of you guys, tell us more about what it is that you guys do on a day-to-day basis. Sure, Andrew. So I'm Finbar. As you said, I look after global corporate marketing for MediaTek. I'm based here in San Jose in the Silicon Valley area. But basically, in my role at MediaTek is we look after all of the outward communications from the company. So when we're talking to press, when we're talking to analysts, when we're talking to KOLs and influencers, people like yourself who are regularly commenting on the industry and looking to sort of you know make it understandable to the consumers out there. But also everything we do around trade shows, major events like Consumer Electronics Show, Mobile World Congress, and big events like that, our own events, you know, when we're announcing products. But basically, it's funneling a lot of the messaging and the communications to the outside world for MediaTek. Fair enough. And Anshel, how about you? I'm, I'm an industry analyst, which basically means that I used to work in the industry at one point, and I help kind of bridge the gap between different parts of the industry, whether that's press and, and companies like MediaTek, or even companies that want to work with MediaTek or MediaTek might want to work with. I work with smartphone vendors. I work with component vendors. I work with infrastructure companies. I work with carriers. So I kind of cover the entire scope of the industry. And I have a lot of experience in the industry. So one of the big things I do is try to predict or anticipate what might be happening in the future and notice or identify trends that are happening now and communicate those to the industry, but also a lot of education. So 
I wear many hats, but I think the number one is to make sure that I'm helping the industry move in the right direction. That, that is a, that's a lot. Both of you guys do a lot. Being able to spot trends and make predictions, I assume is, I mean, that sounds super cool, but you have to, like, in order to be a successful analyst, I assume you have to be correct. It's not just fun and games. Like, here's what I think is going to happen, right? You have to actually have a track record for being right when you do these things. Yes. I think it's generally better to be right more often than wrong. I think in our industry, there's a lot of predictability if you look at the past. But I think also I've been pretty good at identifying where things will go based on my experience, which is why that's kind of a big role of an analyst. So some of the questions you've had around different technology trends and things like that, it's my job to kind of pull from the past, look at the present and identify the future. And there's a lot to talk about when it comes to 5G. Absolutely. Absolutely. That will be our first topic. Finbar, before we even jump into 5G, though, I think most people out there, like obviously me and my peers who do, you know, whether it's media, influencers, whatever you want to refer to as SAS or the collective group, we do our best to kind of inform the average consumer about companies like you, companies like Qualcomm, et cetera, that are not necessarily consumer facing. Like I can't go into Best Buy and purchase a MediaTek chip, right? I purchased a device and it's just going to have what it has in it. However, despite that, you guys have leaned in more into doing consumer marketing, if you will. Like I've worked with you guys to talk about MediaTek in several pieces of content that I've done. What is the benefit of that? If you don't sell to consumers, what is the benefit on your end if they don't have the choice? right, to you guys becoming more of a household name rather than just a business name? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question, Andrew. Yeah, I think MediaTek is probably not as well known yet as we would like. We continue to work and sort of trying to educate people about, you know, MediaTek. We are the ninth largest semiconductor company in the world. You know, we're the fourth largest fabulous semiconductor in the world. We're based headquartered in Taiwan, but we have global operations. And I think particularly over the last four or five years, we've really leaned much more heavily, as you said, into the technology. So whether it's 5G or satellite or even Wi-Fi 7 and some of these other things we may talk about later, we've really made a concentrated effort to sort of be on the leading edge of those technology waves as they sort of hit the industry. And I think for back to the, the question, we've done different things. Like, so we work with communities like yourselves, right, to reach your audiences, to sort of tell our story and explain what we do. We also work with a lot of our customers because, again, as you said, we're more like an ingredient brand in the end consumer product or the end product, whatever it might right. be. But very often in certain markets, you know, and I'm thinking China, India, and some global markets, consumers are very aware of what technology is inside their smartphone or their tablet or their PC. And they sort of look to understand what the technology is because that's shapes their expectation of how the device is going to perform when they buy it, right? Some markets pay more attention, some markets pay less attention, but we work closely with our OEMs to sort of walk that fine line between saying, look, here's what we enable, whether it's in a TV or a tablet or a phone. Of course, the whole product is still the end OEM's product and it's their you know whole package of the design and all of the other stuff that they put in that makes the end product. So 
for us, it's really about sort of telling our story, highlighting our technology, and trying to explain what experiences our technology enables in the end device for the consumer. Okay. And so when you say that, what is it that you hope would come to mind in the mind of an average consumer if they're looking at a product that has a MediaTek chip in it? And it's interesting because you guys are in way more than just mobile devices. You're in TVs, you're in you know gym equipment. Obviously, and not when we say mobile, I don't just mean phones, there's tablets, there's, you know, there's foldables, et cetera. So regardless, across the board, what is it that MediaTek wants to be known for? I mean, you're right. I mean, mobile smartphones are just over half of our business. So there's almost half our business that is in all of the other things we do from, you know, Wi-Fi, TVs, IoT, automotive, et cetera, et cetera. But I think our main focus really is to sort of continue to convey how we are at the leading edge of all of these technologies, whether it's the advanced SOCs that are required for flagship smartphones, whether it's the latest 5G standards, whether it's the latest Wi-Fi standards, whether it's satellite connectivity, you know, all of these major technologies that drive not just smartphones, but a whole host of other applications. And I think it's important for us that people recognize that we have all of these technologies and we can deliver different solutions. Because again, there are devices and categories of products out there that are being developed all the time beyond smartphones that need these connectivity or multimedia or SOC technologies. And if people don't know that we have that capability in-house, then you know they don't know that we can help them solve their problems per se, right? So it's kind of much more, I would say, of a educating and continuing to position MediaTek on that leading edge of technology for some of those core technologies that we're going to be talking about. Okay. Well, let's jump into some of these. I want to start with 5G. Now, as you guys already gave your intros, obviously Finbar of MediaTek and Shell as an analyst, I've been considered media and journalist since 2005. More recently, maybe over the past few years, people see me more as an influencer, but it's to me, I've, I've done the same thing, which is I just talk about my favorite thing in the world, which is consumer electronics. If it has a battery or plugs into a wall, I'm all about it. And I approach it from my point of view and I share my point of view and I want to talk to other people who are excited about the same thing. One thing that I think a lot of us were excited about several years ago was 5G coming in. In fact, May 16th, 2019 was when the Galaxy S10 5G launched in the US. So we're approaching four years in to 5G, major push. I mean, major push from the cell phone makers, major push from the carriers, the industry as a whole. 5G is the next big thing. And there were all these different ideas as to what it would do and you know, smart cities, not just even in your mobile, but like all these different things. And from my perspective, which obviously is, I kind of observe the industry, I'm not in it. I kind of observe and just look and see what's happening. It seems that 5G four years in has not really changed the game as much as the previous 4G LTE did. When 4G LTE launched, I remember it always happens this way. Android devices will get it first and then Apple will finally announce, okay, we're doing 4G, we're doing 5G, whatever it might be. And then it's all over the news again, as if it's just launched at that point. But I specifically remember LTE launching with the iPhone 5. And very quickly, looking at uh, both the Google Play and the Apple App Stores, apps were beginning to be released that you could never have on 3G. 
I think 4G was one of the things that allowed us to have things like Uber and Lyft. You can't imagine today being in a major city and not being able to pull out your phone and just order an Uber or Lyft right from the palm of your hand, have a car pick you up and take you to your destination that you can observe in real time where it is, right? Unless I'm missing it, I don't know that we've seen similar changes with the advent of 5G through today. And I wanted to get both of your thoughts on that because I could also be completely wrong, but I want to know what you guys think. I can easily go first. (laughs) Um, So I think the fundamental disconnect is multifaceted as it usually is. I think the first one is certain companies who will not be named. They marketed 5G's capabilities beyond what was technically possible at scale. So let's say millimeter wave as a whole was a spectrum that was available to carriers right away early on. The issue with millimeter wave is that it doesn't propagate. The physical properties of millimeter wave mean that it doesn't propagate, but the physical properties of millimeter wave also mean that you get a lot of bandwidth and a lot of throughput. So you can get really high speeds, but they don't travel very far unless you blast it way beyond what's acceptable by the FCC. And as a result, 5G coverage in the first couple of years with those two carriers that pushed millimeter wave first was absolutely atrocious. And a different carrier took a different approach, which was low band first, improve coverage, and then add the capacity layer on top of that. And lo and behold, that second strategy worked out better. And you know what? A lot of other carriers did that in Europe as well. So I think when you look at the 5G experience in the US, it's drastically different than it is in Europe and the Middle East and even in Asia. So I think the opinion towards 5G not being as good as 4G, I think is very North American. And as a result of that, I think it's actually very valid because I do think the experience was tremendously bad for a lot of customers. But I actually think the broader global issue with 5G and why we don't see as many different types of apps or new kinds of apps is the standalone problem. The issue is when they tried to roll out 5G, it was originally supposed to come out in 2020. They pushed it up to 2019 with a update to the 3GPP standard, which is called non-standalone, which is called NSA. And what it did is it basically took a 5G front end radio and bolted it onto a 4G network to make that upgrade faster. But for all of these new 5G use cases that were being promised, you actually need a full standalone network, which means you need the 5G front end and a 5G back end, which means ripping out a lot of the networking equipment, ripping out a lot of the cloud infrastructure and a lot of the things in between that, which is expensive and time consuming. And as a result of that, you didn't see very many carriers upgrading their infrastructure to this 5G standalone network, which enables the low latency and high throughput capabilities, which then developers can build to. So until T-Mobile launched their standalone network, there literally wasn't a single standalone network in the world for 5G until last year. So we went three years with a what you could call like a 4G++ or a 5G minus minus, not a full 5G standard being marketed as full 5G. And that I think is one of the biggest problems, why we're not seeing these unique and interesting and compelling 5G use cases and applications, whether they're consumer or enterprise, is because standalone is really what drives all these capabilities. And the lack of standalone means that there's a lack 
of capabilities to enable those developers to know that they can build these apps and they will be used in the way that they're built. And the one thing that I'll say for the US market specifically is T-Mobile is the first to roll out standalone. They have the biggest coverage of standalone in the US. Verizon and AT&T still haven't officially like rolled out nationwide standalone. And I believe the 5G experience will improve in the US once all three major carriers have standalone 5G, because then developers know when they build a standalone capable app that the latency and the performance will be there when they need it. And the consumer isn't going to open the app and it just crashes on them. That's an incredible answer. I mean, that was a very thorough, <laughs> well, see, that's why we have the analysts on here. Thorough answer, full of information, uh, a lot of things that I didn't even realize. So you're saying the standalone network that, if I'm not mistaken, just launched a few months ago, right? Am I, am I, am I correct about that? Okay, so he's saying yes. The standalone network that just launched a few months ago is, for lack of a better term, real 5G. That is the equivalent of what we had when LTE launched. It would be the kind of the direct equivalent there. There was a little bit of a similar kind of like bolting on a 4G to a 3G network early on, but they quickly transitioned to a full 4G network because you couldn't deliver voice over LTE without it. Mm, okay. Finbar, what are your thoughts here? No, I was going to uh, agree violently with Anshul. I mean, I think the perception of the 5G performance is, is very much a North American issue for two reasons that, you know, one, Anshul described very well. But two, I think the 4G LTE networks were also very well developed in the North American market, right? We had probably the highest category of LTE, meaning the highest number of bandwidths and spectrum bands aggregated together. So the LTE experience was already excellent, I would say. And then you're trying to build off that with 5G and all of the issues that, that Anshul described. If you take another view, like China is another example where they've accelerated into 5G very quickly, but they, I think, had the advantage of having sub six wide bands of spectrum that they could deploy quickly. So again, you were going from like, you know, maybe 20 megahertz of 4G spectrum to 100 megahertz of 5G spectrum. So the experience there was a huge step function, I would say, from 4G to 5G in terms of the data rates, but also in terms of the capacity of the network to handle so many users doing all these video and high bandwidth kind of applications. And we know markets like China is a very social networking, video consuming culture. So I think the experience is gonna be different in different regions. The one we're all watching now, of course, is the Indian market is moving to 5G, which I think is gonna do a lot to propel more affordable 5G devices because that's really what the market will demand there. We're probably at the stage globally where this year we think over 50, 55% of the phones sold will be 5G capable phones. So we've kind of already passed the tipping point, but the growth is clearly slowing down, right, from where it was over the last couple of years. So we've kind of passed that first hump of the S curve, but 4G will continue to get squeezed out solely. 5G will continue to get added in as we see affordable devices in US and Europe for prepaid segments. Markets like India and LATAM and other regions adopting 5G, demanding more affordable devices. But I think the, as Anshul mentioned, the SA architecture moving to a pure 5G network and some of the new releases that are coming in 5G. So, you know, release 16, release 17, release 18, where actually more of the focus is about, I would say, power consumption advantages, reducing power consumption and reducing the latency and the delays in the networking, that 
those new standards coupled with SA architectures that we're going to see, you know, rolling out in Europe and US and other markets, those are the ones that are going to bring those new experiences that are going to be differentiated, I think, from what the 4G world could do. So when you say it's a very North American view and there's other regions, obviously other regions out there in the world, what would you say are some of the key differences? Like if you are in one of those other regions, what would be the differences that you would observe as an average consumer using 5G there versus here? Well, first, I think it was really only in the US, as Anshul mentioned, that there was any focus on millimeter wave in the first wave of 5G. Mm. So we at MediaTek, for example, our first generation of 5G solutions didn't support millimeter wave. We've subsequently added support for millimeter wave. We can enable it if we need to. It's still an important technology for the long run, but it wasn't, I think, history has shown us it wasn't a necessary technology for the first wave of 5G. And it was really, I think, the spectrum challenge that Anshul also alluded to in the US that made it more pressing. But the deployment factors, the fact that a pandemic hit in the early days when nobody wanted to be, you know, millimeter wave probably makes most sense in densely populated locations, sports venues, concert venues, et cetera. The kind of things none of us were doing for a couple of years during the right. pandemic. But I think what I feel the, the big experience difference will be is the network capacity gains that are going to come with 5G, right? So just the ability to handle so much more data, right? You know, we're seeing this in the States, for example, where 5G is being deployed for fixed wireless access, broadband access. There was some deployments of that in the 4G world, but I think the network just couldn't sustain the capacity requirements, whereas 5G has a lot more capability there. So users don't see it necessarily in their individual experiences, but the overall network experience for all the users in the network with more demanding applications will get better. Like there's less buffering and less lags if you're watching videos, right? I mean, I don't notice those anymore. I mean, I forget half the time whether I'm on 5G or Wi-Fi, right? It's sort of seamless, you know? Whereas I think in the 4G world, you did have those buffering experiences or whatever. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that the 5G evolution is going to bring us or is already bringing what do you think, this question for both of you, I know it's, to, well, actually, Anshel, I mean, you, you're the one making the predictions here. Um, I was going to say, it's hard to predict these things. Like looking back before 4G LTE launched, it was hard. I, I don't know that I would have ever predicted a lot of the things that we saw come to our smartphones. What do you think people can expect once this whole 5G thing is worked out and we started to see these standalone networks and everything? What will that enable us to do with the devices that we have on us that we can't do now, basically? I think you're going to see a lot of things happen that take advantage of connectivity. So first, I think you're going to see more companies adding cellular connectivity to devices that simply didn't have them before. That'll be a function of 5G being more power efficient, improving power consumption, and hitting just the right throughput for the application. So not every application is going to need four gigabits per second, but maybe it just needs 100 megabits or 200 megabits. And you tailor that solution to that application. And I think we're starting to see some of that today with MediaTek and Qualcomm and their modems and how they're tailoring these different modems to the different types of non-smartphone applications. And I think I personally am a huge proponent of 5G PCs. I have a, a SIM card in, in at least one of my PCs because, first of all, it's way more secure, right? I think you're going to see way more people 
using 5G as a security solution. Obviously, Wi-Fi 6 brings a lot of improved security, but there's going to be a lot of Wi-Fi out there that never gets Wi-Fi 6. And some people don't even know Wi-Fi 6 exists yet, right? So there's that whole situation. But I think getting more to the core of your question, I think you're going to see a lot more in the enterprise space in terms of connectivity, which is obviously not as relevant to your audience, but you're going to see 5G tractors. You're going to see 5G in almost every vehicle with wheels on it because it gives you the ability to deliver services, collect telemetry, and basically improve the user experience while also gathering valuable data. And I also think there's going to be lots of smaller devices that maybe didn't have a cellular connection yet or may have a 4G connection and get upgraded to 5G. So the way I'm looking at it is like, I really believe that Apple, once they figure out their 5G modem situation, are going to put a 5G modem in your watch, which they already have a 4G one, but one in your watch, one in your iPad, one in your PC, and one in your phone, and allow those all to communicate with each other so that you have a seamless Apple experience that is controlled by iCloud, but allows apps to communicate with each other and you can move seamlessly between apps. Microsoft is kind of trying to do that now, but I think Apple is trying to do that on the device side rather than Microsoft, which is dependent on all the other ecosystems. But I think that's connectivity driving and and integrating more modems will be a really big deal. And it'll be so fast and seamless that you won't have to wait for it. It will feel instantaneous. It will feel like all of your devices are connected with a wire. That's really the experience that they're trying to deliver. And I think that kind of experience will move to TVs and consoles. I don't think you're going to see 5G consoles necessarily, but we already have a 5G handheld, right? So I think those kinds of devices will continue to evolve. I'm not sure what the bill of materials will look like today, or maybe it'll have to die and come back in a second version, like sometimes happens with these things. But I really think that there's going to be a ton more devices with 5G modems and the services and the the structure of how these things are delivered will change. Because I think, let's say Microsoft builds their own xCloud device, they could theoretically lease a 5G slice from AT&T and offer you the device, the content, and the connectivity all for one monthly price. And that's kind of like the holy grail of, of what 5G can deliver, but it really depends on the operators to enable it because they own the pipe and they've kind of struggled to embrace new capabilities. You know, they, they struggled with 4G, they're struggling with 5G, but I really think network slicing, which is a capability that enables standalone 5G, will be a component of creating new business models and, and, and user experiences. That's interesting. I'll tell you, the, like, as a consumer, the one thing that is going through my mind as you were talking, and the industry would have to be, <laughs> there has to be a major shift. I'm thinking how expensive, as a consumer, my carrier bill would be. Like right now, you know, most people will have smartphone, maybe smartwatch, or if they're on a family plan, a few phones and a few watches, maybe a tablet or two. But going from that to all my phones, all my watches, my game consoles, my car, my TV, 5G everywhere, the way it's currently priced, I mean, that sounds insane, right? Is the industry expecting some sort of shift there as well to allow 5G to kind of come to the forefront in that way for the average person? I'll quickly say something. I think they have to, because if you look at subscriber numbers with the major carriers, they've all almost leveled off. 
And if they want to talk subscriptions and ads, they're going to have to allow people to add devices more easily and do it in a more cost-efficient manner. A smartwatch does not use remotely as much data as a smartphone does. Mm -hmm. And the pricing of those plans has come down to reality. I mean, I have a smartwatch plan now because I think it's fairly reasonably priced, but PCs still haven't come to the reality, I think. And I think there's already pretty aggressive pricing on fixed wireless, right? So I think we are still figuring out a lot of these pricing models. And I think that's one of the big problems. But I think the companies who deliver, who are going to lease out these services or pay for wholesale pricing of connectivity, I think those are more likely to be the places where the pricing gets figured out through negotiations and wholesale pricing rather than consumers having to pull in all the devices and pay right. for them all together through their connectivity, but then introduces a new problem like, you know, why am I paying 50 bucks a month for my device? Well, because it has connectivity and services and blah, 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 but then you have a different bill and then it becomes another subscription that you're paying. And I think we can all agree subscription fatigue is a real thing. Absolutely. Finbar, what do you think? Yeah, it's not just on the subscription side, but I think, you know, Anshul's kind of hinted at this as well, but there are different tiers of 5G and we've kind of touched on some of them, right? So at the very high end today, we talk about multiple carriers with millimeter wave support. You're starting to get to the 7, 10 gigabit per second kind of level, right? Not everything needs that level of connectivity, right? And so what you see already in our in our own technology internally at MediaTek, we have more mainstream sub-6 modems that go into our mainstream 5G devices. They're capable of a couple of gigabits per second, sub six only. They don't support millimeter wave. So again, that helps with the cost of the overall devices. But longer term as well, like the standard, the 3GPP standard, you know, we talked about how the networks are moving to an all 5G standalone network architecture. Well, there's a new standard called REDCap, reduced capacity, which is part of the 5G evolution and will be coming soon. And that's really about bringing more like 4G LTE data rates. So you're not trying to chase the gigabit per second. You're more in the hundreds of megabits per second level for devices that don't need those kind of data rates. Right. So again, that's going to bring all of the advantages of the 5G network, et cetera, without the huge peak speeds. But for the applications that don't need it, it will also make it much more affordable to put 5G technology into devices from the device side. So you obviously have to work on the device cost and the real cost to adding 5G. And 5G is definitely more expensive than 4G from a chipset and silicon and radio and all the components that go around it. So you have to work on that. Anshul mentioned like the PC segment. And again, I think the pricing structure there is a challenge uh, when you look at the added bill of materials on a device. But again, that's where probably more creative models of how that gets absorbed probably needs to be looked at. And then you get into the different subscription models that Anshul was talking about. Okay, now let's switch over from 5G to another much newer, te- well, older technology, but new to our, our devices, which is satellite connectivity, which is still, I mean, pretty crazy. I mean, I guess usually cell towers are connecting to satellites anyway, but being able to use your phone and connect directly to a satellite. Obviously, Apple made the biggest splash with this one with the launch of the iPhone 14, which has satellite connectivity, which allows you only if you have no Wi-Fi and no cell service and you're outside and you are in the line of sight of a satellite, you can then call 
well, not call, you can basically send text messages to get emergency help, which is cool, right? I mean, when, when they showed the demo, it was cool. They brought us out to Apple Park and we demoed it ourselves with live satellites in, in the sky. Very cool, but also something that, I mean, I would hope, I would, I would never, ever, ever need to take advantage of. So MediaTek announced Satellite Connectivity Technology 2 at Mobile World Congress, and it was more than just, hey, if you're rock climbing and get lost, I don't know. I don't, I'm not very outdoor active, so I don't even know. I'm, I'm in the Grand Canyon. I don't know how it works. But you, you announced- You never go outside of a 5G or a Wi-Fi. Correct, that's right, exactly. <laughs> Once my phone says LTE, I start getting scared. Tell me about the differences here. Like, what was the announcement and what should the average consumer know about satellite connectivity and like kind of where this technology is going to be going in the future? Sure. So let me start. So, yeah, like the satellite thing is interesting, but there's lots of different approaches. So the approach that MediaTek has taken, and we've been very instrumental in driving this, is we're going down a standard-based approach. So... Our satellite technology is aligned completely with the 3GPP standardization activity. In fact, we drove some of the, the standardization. The solution that's available today, and it's you know been demonstrated by Motorola and then Bullet, our partner in, in the UK, is we developed a standalone chip, basically, that you can add to any device, right? So you can add it to a 4G or a 5G chip in a phone. You also saw Motorola announced the little Connect device, which is just providing standalone satellite connectivity and a Bluetooth link to any phone. So it's a standalone device, and it, it implements what's known as IoT NTN. So IoT and then NTN, non-terrestrial networks, right, is the terminology. But basically, it allows for a bi-directional communication, low data rate. So we're still talking kind of messaging applications. You know, you're not doing video or voice calls over this thing. So it's you know kilobits per second messaging data, but it's bi-directional. And the other key difference with our approach is we're using connection to geostationary satellites. So they're much higher up in the sky, less of them, and therefore not moving as quickly relative to you on the ground, right? So in terms of like trying to orient yourself or get a signal, it's less sensitive than some of the other solutions that are being proposed that are based on low Earth orbit satellites. So our approach today, you know, which is shipping in devices and is, is fully commercialized, it's a chipset from MediaTek. And of course, it's a whole software services bundle that Bullet has put together in terms of the satellite connectivity and the emergency response services and all of that. But you can add it to any device, bi-directional communication. We also, at MWC, we also had a technology demonstration, which is really the next generation, which is called NR, so new radio, same as 5G, NTN. And that's really about bringing more like megabit per second level connectivity, so more like broadband speeds. So again, voice, video, data. It'll probably be more like an early 3G experience in terms of the data rates or HSDPA kind of levels. But that's a little bit further out in time. It is going to require new constellations of low Earth orbit satellites to do that. But we were demonstrating, Anshul was there, other people were there, a video link, basically a video conference over a satellite link emulated. Obviously, we weren't talking to a satellite that didn't exist, but that's sort of showing what will be capable at some point in the future. 
that will likely be just a default feature of advanced 5G modems as they start to roll out. So again, that feature will be kind of, I think, enabled if you want with any 5G modem in the next couple of years. So if I'm looking out to the future with no within limits, but a decade, two decades, is the plan or the thought process that satellite might eventually be a viable alternative to a cell carrier? Like, could I just, you have a phone that connects to satellites and when I send a text message or make a phone call or do a video chat, that I just, I just subscribe to the satellite provider as opposed to the cell carrier? Or is it always going to be like a, a fallback kind of thing? I think we would see it more as complementary, right? So like the satellite allows you to have coverage where you otherwise would not have coverage, right? So the places you don't go, Andrew. But it's expensive to build cellular networks. It's expensive to build them everywhere, right? It's not economically viable as we know there are uncovered spaces everywhere. We see the satellite as more complementary. So initially, it has this capability of supporting emergency services, which is great. Again, like insurance, you don't need it till you need it and hope you never do. But if you do, it would be good to have it. But longer term, I think we see this as more like complementing Wi-Fi networks and traditional cellular terrestrial networks, and then covering the rest of the globe, basically. Move to our next topic, which is going to be foldables. This is another one that I've, I've been kind of like, there's two sides to it for me, at least. First side is that these devices are really cool. Like it's cool. It feels very futuristic. It feels like you're in, in Star Trek or something when you take a foldable smartphone out of your pocket and unfold a display. Like, I don't know, five years ago, you were not, if you folded a display, it, it broke, it cracked and it, it was, it was done. You couldn't use it anymore. And now we have all these different devices that you can just easily just fold them up, put them in your pocket, carry them around. Very cool. The other side, though, is, again, this is just my own personal opinion. I almost feel like it's kind of like when the movie industry tried to make 3D TV a thing. Maybe, what was that, you know, 10 years ago or so, where it was like they were putting 3D into every new TV. It almost became a checkbox feature where it was like, at first you could choose to buy a 3D TV. And then it was like, hey, every, everything has 3D now. And Blu-rays have a 3D and, and I don't think there was any streaming 3D, but there was a lot of 3D. And then one year it was like, you know what? We're going all in on 4K and HDR and 3D is just gone now. It's just not, it's not here anymore. And it almost felt like it was a cool thing to get people to upgrade, but there wasn't a lot of real world utility. Now, foldables haven't reached the checkbox stage yet. And when I say checkbox, what I mean by that is 3D became something that you wouldn't even see a price premium for, whereas foldables still have it. In fact, Google is rumored to be announcing its foldable Pixel at $1,800. I mean, that kind of matches what Samsung does, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for anyone. That's more than most very powerful laptops out there. Where do you guys see the foldable segment kind of evolving and falling over the next couple of years? I think I'll start, but I just actually published a review of the uh, good old Oppo here. And I had a lot of thoughts about the, the foldable market that I kind of wound into that article. But basically, I think the big issue with foldables, which 3D TVs, that biggest issue was the glasses, right? Glasses-free 3D came too late. And I actually have a 3D tablet now. And I actually think, this is from Leia, they're going to come back. 
this tablet is a, is a really good indicator of 3D. 3D is going to come back in a weird way, kind of as like a, a supplement to VR headsets and AR headsets. We can talk about that later. Glasses free? Um, it's glasses free? Oh, yeah. It's glasses free. It tracks your face, actually, to perfectly align the 3D. But the thing I think that's about foldables is it's the cost of the display. That's one. Two, it's the hinge, the mechanical design. And I think we've seen huge improvements in both of those in the last three years. And then the fourth one is software, which is really just getting apps to take advantage of the bigger screen that unfolds, but more importantly, that outer screen, right? Because we all know that a regular candy bar phone, you don't have to unfold to address those notifications and things you see on the outer on the screen before you unlock it. Those have to be just as seamless on a foldable. And I think that's the biggest hurdle I think we're seeing today is just getting enough apps to work with all the different types of outside screens that there are on a foldable. Apple won't have that problem because they will have one type of screen on all their foldables, whatever they decide to do. But on Android, we have this diverse ecosystem of different types of cover screens. And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge to overcome in addition to having apps take advantage of the larger screen size. But really, when you look at a foldable today, when it opens, like this Oppo is the same size screen as my S23 Ultra, essentially. So I don't think there's as much of an issue when the foldables open, at least on the flip side. On the fold side, I agree. There's actually a lot more software work that needs to be done there. And I think this is almost all Google related in terms of Android operating system. But I really think the cover screen is a big challenge, taking advantage of those on the flip side. And then on the fold side, taking advantage of the much larger screen on the inside and both of those being addressed by the operating system so the developers can make the most of them. Because I got to be honest with you, the best TikTok experience on earth is on a Galaxy Z Fold because you you get the full screen video plus the comments all in one screen. You don't have to cover up your video to see the comments. It's a simple little UI thing, but it, it makes having a foldable way more valuable to the user. And it's those little things, those little UI tweaks, I think they're going to be really valuable. And honestly, we haven't really addressed them even on the web. Like think about how many web pages aren't really truly reactive to the screen size that you have. It's either a, you know, a 1920 by 1080 screen or it's a smartphone. And those are the only two parameters people address on the web. So I think it's going to be a big challenge to overcome. But I think if it's overcome correctly and addressed in the operating system, Developers can really help make it better. And I don't think foldables will necessarily be a fad. I think they're an evolution of the smartphone, but cost and software are, are big factors. Yeah, I would agree. I don't, I mean, and clearly, Anshul, they're not going to like be the only form factor. They're going to be a of segment of the market. And my own experience with people who got them, they love the experience when they get into it, right? It's a limited data set, obviously, but uh, you know, people like that experience either from the flip or the fold. So I think there are people who will gravitate towards them. I think we've clearly seen improvements in the form factor, as you mentioned, right? So I think it will stay and be a reasonable size of the smartphone market going forward. Henschel, when does Apple do this? It seems like you mentioned one issue, which is the software. Like you want your software optimized for both screens. You want it to be a great experience on both sides. And the problem for a lot of developers is I'm going to develop for devices that people have right so if a foldable is eighteen hundred dollars and i'm talking I'm, I'm mostly focusing again here in the us a lot of the foldables that are the cooler foldables i think aren't even aren't even here 
But the ones that we have here are very expensive, which means if I need to put more development time into my app to be compatible with something that not many people even have. So what's, what's my motivation to do so? If you think about an outer screen that runs an iOS iPhone app, and then you open it up and there's the iPad version of the app, for example, like there's so many opportunities. I think that kind of solves that problem. But at least from my view, it doesn't seem to even be anywhere in sight. It's actually very interesting how on the Android side of things, you have these amazing, again, super cool. If you're into tech and consumer electronics, this experience is only available with one platform right now. I want to know your thoughts on the future there. I think a good thing to look at is how they're handling the XR headset, because the XR headset has very similar challenges in the sense that you know you need developer support. This is a kind of a new platform in the sense that like new use cases and you have to get developers to support it. And I also think it's something that they probably have had ready for a while in terms of design and, and concept, but have been holding on to for one reason or another. Because I've heard that the Apple headset was supposed to have launched years ago. That was the original plan. And I have a feeling the foldable is in the same boat. And I think really what it's coming down to is the headset has to launch because they've been developing it in secret for like the last eight years, if not longer. And, you know, you can only burn so many billions in R&D and not deliver a product and you eventually have to launch it. And I think that's going to be a similar thing with the foldable. I think the foldable will come fairly soon, but I think the foldable will come most likely when Apple feels that foldables as a category are eating into their high-end products and how it, how they're shipping. Because to your point right now, foldables are still very much a premium end product. But if they start shipping in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, that will eat into Apple's margin and, and their market share. And that's when they'll have to address it. It's very similar to how you know they didn't really deploy 5G early enough to compete with others, but they came out earlier than I think some people would have expected. But they were late to 4G, for example, and they lost a lot of customers to Samsung. But I think the foldable will probably come in the next year or two. I think that the issue is, you know, launching new products is a challenge for Apple. But I really think the biggest factor is actually going to be cost. Because if you look at the way Apple runs their business, almost everything is about margin. And if they can't get a good enough margin product out the door, then they probably won't ship it. So I think what they're probably looking at is how do we get the cost of these hinges to come down? What suppliers can we use and how advanced are they and whether or not they can supply us the volume? Because, you know, like in the early days of 5G, there probably weren't enough 5G modems out there to supply them. And I think that's something to consider. You know, when Apple launches a device, you know, they're shipping over 100 million a year of those. That's a lot. And for a supplier to be able to deliver that is a challenge. So I think they're also waiting for supplier diversity, volume, cost, all the components. So it's got to be the hinge and the display both have to meet those parameters. And I think once the market gets mature enough, I think it will be mature enough for Apple to launch as well. And I think that'll probably happen within the next year or two. So you think the hinge and display, that's, that was going to be my next question. I'm still a few years later, like I still get flashbacks of how quite honestly terrible the first 
Galaxy Fold was as it pertained to durability. It felt like I had to baby it. I was very, like, I was just always scared. Like, this is going to break. And obviously, it's been several years since then, and I don't feel that as much, but I feel it more than I do standard candy bar smartphone. Are we at a point now where hinges and displays can just be trusted and seen as high quality, or is it still something that they're working towards? I would say that there have been a lot of innovations in the material space that have made the displays a lot more durable. Shot is one of the companies, and Corning has also helped integrate really thin glass into the display to make it more durable. I think the Galaxy Z Fold 4 actually allows you to use a pen on it now, which you couldn't do before because it was too delicate. So I think we're definitely in a place where screen durability has improved considerably. I also agree with you, you know, the first gen fold I was terrified of using. And I think that protective film on mine came off eventually. But yeah, I think the the durability was definitely a valid concern. But you know, with like this Oppo Find N2 Flip, not for a second have I ever worried about dropping it. I'm clumsy, so I drop things all the time. So it's a valid concern, but I've definitely dropped this thing a few times, admittedly in its case, but I haven't had any concerns. I think I was talking to uh, or reading Michael Fisher's tweets about the same device, and he dropped it a couple of times and it has a few scuffs and that's about <laughs> it, which is basically what you would expect from a smartphone at this yes. point. But I'm really clumsy. So I drop phones all the time, not intentionally. The first fold, I definitely dropped a couple of times and I was scared, but all the other folds that I've had since I really haven't had much of an issue. And I think that's a mechanical design thing, but you know, there's an outside screen, there's an inside screen. So, you know, I think it depends how, how hard you drop it too. But yeah, I think the durability thing has been well addressed. And I think the companies want to make sure that it's addressed because if it's not, people aren't going to buy it. But for me, I think the cost is, is, is a big factor. This Find N2 Flip is a great phone, but it's still $1,000, right? So I think there's still going to be some need for 800, 700, maybe even 600. I don't see foldables coming much further down than that. But I think one of the other things is I'd love to see better cameras on them. Right now, most of the flips and folds, they're like a generation of camera behind or you know, there may be a sensor or two below. So I'd love to see the cameras improve on, on these, especially if they're going to be continued to be like a, you know, a premium tier device. Let's move on to our, our last topic today, which is going to be VR headsets, VR, XR, AR, whatever, whatever they might be. First, for people who don't know, I shared this uh, as soon as you guys announced it. I ran over instantly in Sonoma to check out the PSVR to just, just to get close to it because it wasn't out yet. But MediaTek powers the PSVR 2 headset. I wanted Finbar just to kind of talk to us about that. What sets that headset apart from others on the market, especially with the MediaTek chip? Well, to be clear, that was, and I think we, we mentioned this at the event as well, that was a custom engagement with Sony. So that's basically not a standard product from our side, but basically also includes Sony's own IP and capability and the partner they worked with to develop the solution. So it's clearly also got a lot of Sony know-how, right? Yes. Coming from the gaming and camera and all of their capabilities and experience on displays and everything. So I haven't personally used it yet. <laughs> But I've talked to colleagues who have, and they say it, it really is an excellent experience, right, in terms of the gaming experience. So 
I'll probably be looking forward to trying it out as soon as I can. But I think it's really the collaboration of like media flexibility to deliver highly integrated, low power SOCs to deliver the experience. But clearly the Sony know-how and Sony IP is also a big part of that. I can speak to it. I have one in the other room. I don't have it in my office because it's connected to my TV because that's where my PlayStation lives. But I think the PSVR is a very interesting device because I think it's ahead of its time. But I think it's going to also enable an era of AR and VR that will move us to the next phase of the XR industry. And that's with eye tracking. Some of the games in the PSVR 2 now already use eye tracking for user interface. So you don't have to use your hands to select things. You just look at them and they magically get selected. And that's actually a great accessibility thing. But I think what eye tracking really brings, and I believe they're using Toby as part of the solution, which is another company I work with. They are able to render just the part of the screen that you're looking at, at full resolution, and then reduce the resolution outside of your field of view, which then allows the game developer to gain anywhere between 50 to 60% performance so that they can either run the game faster or add more fidelity to the game that otherwise wouldn't be possible because it's running off of a PS5, which is essentially an AMD GPU. And that capability will enable more performance, higher quality experience, better frame rate to reduce VR sickness. And that will improve the user experience, improve the quality of content, And in other platforms, like let's say mobile, you'll be able to get more performance out of the platform than you otherwise would be because they're running off smartphone chips. And a Quest 2 is really not that powerful of a chip anymore. Consider how fast we move with the mobile industry. And it's really great to have something like foveated rendering to enable you to get more performance out of the same chip that you've had before. Obviously, the GPU in the SOC has support foveated rendering, so there's a you know cutoff there. But in general, I think foveated rendering with the PSVR will be a really big component of the next generation of XR. And I guarantee you, lots of high-end headsets are going to have this. Even I think the Apple headset will have it. One thing to consider also with eye tracking is you can use it for authentication because your irises are more unique than your fingerprints and more secure and harder to spoof. So... You could have different people put on the headset and it will automatically authenticate that user profile and securely biometrically log them into their profile. So you don't have to use passwords anymore. You don't have to select user profiles. It'll just know you're you. And one of the other challenges with with ARVR is optical interpupillary distance IPD. It can automatically calibrate the headset to have the best user experience to you by calibrating the eye tracking and the lenses perfectly for your eyes. Because if you don't have a good alignment on the headset with your eyes, then you're going to have strain and that will make it tire and your eyes will get, will hurt and you'll get headaches. So all of these things, a lot of these things, a lot of the challenges with an XR headset are overcome with eye tracking. Unfortunately, it does come with an added cost, but that's something that was way worse, maybe say three, four years ago and has improved today. And Having it in the PSVR will improve the scale and cost of that as well. Nice. So I'm just curious, like, obviously, it seems that when Apple does something, the consumers and the industry kind of take notice, right? They kind of pay attention. What are they doing? And I'm curious because it's rare for them to launch 
a new product category. I would say the most recent new product category was the Apple Watch, which is eight years old. So it's been almost a decade since they've done this. And obviously the big rumor is that in June, just over a month from now on June 5th, that they'll be announcing an Apple VR headset. Mark Gurman has been super hardcore on this is definitely happening on this day, writing for Bloomberg. I'm curious for you guys, just in, in your line of work, when something like this happens from the largest consumer tech company on earth, is it how it seems? Does the industry kind of stop and pay attention and kind of almost let's see what's happening here and, and see what we can glean from it? Like for me as a consumer, I'm just excited to see it, right? Christmas, it's like Christmas morning, new thing. I'm going to pre-order it or they'll send me a review unit, whatever it might be. But when you work in the industry, how does it differ for you guys? I'll offer some opinions just because I, I cover XR very closely. There has been a constant drumbeat for the last two to three years of everyone within, within the industry trying to anticipate when Apple will launch. Because to your point, Apple is a very large company and they influence a lot of consumer sentiment around consumer electronics, right? Whether it's smartphones, PCs, you name it. And there's two camps that exist today. There is the camp that is trying to beat Apple to launch to say they had something out before Apple or just mature their product so that it iterates like, let's say Meta, right? They're just constantly launching headsets every year, iterating their process and making things better. And then you have other people who are waiting for Apple to launch and want to react to how Apple launches and what they launch. And they don't want to maybe necessarily invest too much until there's already a market. But I have to be honest with you, from what I can see, I think Apple's launch with this headset is going to be a slow one, much like it was with the watch. I think you're going to see low volume, high price, and it's going to be a lot of developers figuring out how to use it. And I think you're not really going to see it really take off in high volume, probably until the second or third generation, which is kind of like what happened with the watch. And I, I think that they're going to do a lot of really interesting stuff, but I think a lot of it's already in market. I think they're already, they're just going to do things that are much more integrated and more buttoned up. And the experience is going to be a lot cleaner, but the applications are probably already out there. Finbar, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the industry will clearly pay attention if they do what is rumored, right? I mean, I, I don't know any more than, than you guys do, right? But yes, just from the silicon side, of course, Apple themselves has a you know phenomenal in-house silicon capability. So those of us in the semiconductor industry, I'm sure we'll be trying to figure out what they're capable of, what they've done there. I mean, they've done some amazing things already. I wouldn't be surprised if they continue to do that with new categories if they do launch these devices. So yeah, we'll all be paying attention, I'm sure. All right. And, and just to end it, I want to I just want to know from you guys, obviously, I put together these format, this question, et cetera, the, or the series of questions and topics we went through. What did I miss? What is on the horizon in the near future that you guys think is going to be kind of game changing? <laughs> I'm always reminded in these kind of discussions of the famous Yogi Berra thing, you know, making predictions is hard, especially about <laughs> the future, <laughs> which is the, the life that Angel lives all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think we touched on some of them, right? I think the satellite stuff is interesting because it is going to change the experience of these devices for people. And, it, you know, it's clearly this emergency services, which is very valuable when you need it, right? But again, I think longer term, the ability for that to kind of plug in the blank holes that we have in the global coverage, I think is going to be transformative for a lot of people. Other satellite technologies, 
that are providing broadband services today are already doing that, right? I mean, I was recently on vacation in Chile. I had the chance to go to Easter Island. And Starlink is a huge phenomenon on Easter Island because it's like it's transformed the people's lives on that island because they were relying on like other kind of satellite links before that weren't delivering the same kind of service. So they all have broadband access now and they're delighted. Purely transformative. So I think satellite has the ability to bring some of those really unique experiences that we haven't experienced with the kind of land-based technologies before. I want to build on that, but also add that I think satellite will eventually become like a base level for emergency services where I think some countries will actually mandate that satellite connectivity becomes standard on all phones. Because I think if you think about like natural disasters, which are increasing in frequency with global warming, when a hurricane or a tornado goes through an area, it cuts all power and you lose cell signal, right? So what, what do you have? Nothing. So having satellite as a backup for those kinds of experiences, I think will be really crucial for improving saving lives. And when you start talking about saving lives, the price of things changes and it becomes a public good. So I think there will be a point where satellite service will become base level, at least at the emergency level, maybe not so much on the two-way messaging side. Um, but I think if you have that satellite connectivity already, it makes a lot easier to, to enable two-way messaging at a lower cost. And then on the other side, I, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things coming with Wi-Fi 7. I think Wi-Fi 7 is going to, I think a lot of people are going to skip 6 in some ways because I think 6 was a really good improvement. But I think a lot of people, because of one reason or another, didn't switch to it. I think 7 will be a big complement to 5G. And I think so having Wi-Fi 7 and 5G together will be really powerful for a lot of applications. And I think XR will depend heavily on Wi-Fi 7. So, you know, having that smartphone connected to your headset while you're on the go, or having all these kinds of new use cases where you don't need to always be on the 5G network. And let's be honest, nobody really wants to use cell service when they're at home. So I think the continued evolution of Wi-Fi is going to be important with Wi-Fi 7. And all these different types of connectivity working together to make new use cases work better. I think satellite is really crucial but I also think Wi-Fi and 5G are also super important. Having them all work together seamlessly at low power will, will be a great thing for all kinds of devices, whether they're foldables or, or old school candy bar phones. Excellent. Hey, I want to thank you guys for taking the time this week to join us, Finborn and Shell. Why don't you guys let people know where they can find you online if they want to hear more of your, your insights? I'm at Anshel Sog pretty much everywhere. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. That's just me everywhere. Yeah, and probably the best place to go is like MediaTek. So MediaTek.com, we're at MediaTek on Twitter and all the other socials as well. And that is it for this edition of Geared Up. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, you can catch John and I on YouTube. I'm at YouTube.com slash Gear Live. And John is at YouTube.com slash John for Lakers. Feel free to head over and subscribe to our channels to stay up to date on all the latest tech. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to Geared Up in your favorite podcast app if you haven't done so already. Just search Geared Up, that's two words, not one, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or really wherever you choose to listen. If you like what we do, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show. Geared Up is a Gear Live podcast, and you can see more from us at gearlive.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. For John Rettinger, I'm Andrew Edwards, and we'll catch you in the next episode.